Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is October the 10th. You'll be hearing this on October the 12th. I am here with Tammy. Tammy, you're still okay. in front of the sweating. You're still in front of the sweating wallpaper. Gotten a lot of feedback on the wallpaper conversation. Oh, really? What yeah, people are very curious about this wallpaper. <laughs> it's going to be the backdrop <laughs> for the next month and a half still, so I don't know what to say. <laughs> I was trying to think about what it looked like this morning because I was hoping you'd be in front of it again. And I was like, okay, it's either like you are like running a hospital really in terrible. Cambodia in 1975 in like a terribly racist American movie. Oh, my God. You know? Or you're like in a, or you're like a meth cook in Florida or something like that. <laughs> it really looks like it's sweating. That's I'm the part that's so weird options. about it. All right. Well, the lighting is horrifying. Okay, I'm looking at my list, and the first thing that we're gonna discuss—it's just me and Tammy this week. Um, but uh, Tam- I don't know, Tammy. How's the surfing going? Surfing's going okay. I I am standing up very comfortably now, and I almost turned. Turned. Yeah. Turning is overrated. Wait, like, really? What do you mean stand up? Yeah. Well, first of all, you look very tan. I got. I'm say. so dark. I know. It In Korea, good. it's you're... like very stressful to get this dark, as you know. Why? Why? Because your relatives say all this stuff to you. Everyone you see says stuff to you. It's just like because they're stressed out about it, and then it makes me stressed out about it. <laughs> so this is, is it, like is the darkest young people I've been since too? I was a child. I know, but like, I this is like a legitimate question. Is it still young? Is it are young people obsessed with this sort of thing too, or is it like a old? Is it like mostly your aunts and uncles and stuff? Like no, that? it's or your cousins. It's definitely people of all ages. Oh, really? All I ages think that and they class positions, except maybe it's like a little bit of a regional thing, you know? Like I'm okay, staying in so the countryside, no... so it's less stressful. But if I go to Seoul, everyone's like, "Oh my God, what happened to you?" Like. Oh no! Well, I re- we reject this obviously, you mm-hmm. know. Like Korea, grow up, you know. You th- <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like the body standards thing is shifting a little bit. Like there are like stores that sell clothes that are like above a size four now. Um, oh really? So, yeah. You know, one of the th- funniest <laughs> things for me is going clothes shopping in Korea. Oh my god! I'm like a very. Uh, I don't know how to put it. I have like a very wide torso, you know, mm-hmm. and I, nothing fits. Yeah. Like I got, what's that? What is that name? What is that thing where they have, I, I don't remember the name in Seoul where they have like, you know, piles and piles of clothes and you walk through and they're like, you walk through and there's like 5,000. It's like the clothing wholesaling district. It, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, I see that at Namdaemunshijang, but. Okay. Maybe that's it. I, I don't know, but I've yeah. been there. Uh-huh. And I've tried, I like went to like 15 different places and I like could not find a thing that fit me. <laughs> like, so you walk, up to the, you walk up to the merchant and they're like, no. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm five foot nine. I'm not like a big person, you know? And like at the time, like at the time I was like in reasonable shape, it's like literally nothing would fit around my shoulders, yeah. you know? And it's not like I'm like, like, I'm not like the incredible Hulk here, you know? But everything was like fit for <laughs> Somebody whose shoulders are like exactly the same width as their head. Yeah. Like the head to the feet is like a straight line. You know, it's just like this. Like, and like, people have big heads here. And yet. I know. That's what I mean. It's like a giant head, tiny shoulder, like fit. It's right. like, that's not even a good look. Who wants like, you know, you look walking around, <laughs> you're looking like a Q-tip. 
<laughs> You're like, let's, let's make Q-tip. Oh anyway, whatever. That's enough Korea bashing. No, it's today, true. I yeah. went to buy a swimsuit and the woman walked me. She just like steered me directly to the extra large section. These are the five swimsuits that will fit you here. <laughs> really? Like, I'm not, I'm a smallish person. And then yeah, she was totally right. Not... She was totally right. It was actually small. It was tight on me. I was like, what is the, where am I okay, supposed to like, go? <laughs> who are that, who is that for though? You know, who is the normal sizing for? Is it just for like tiny know. people? I don't know. Like, you know, most Korean people I know are not that tiny, you know? There's a lot of really tiny people. Very, very like small boned, small framed Oh, but anyway, well, yeah, it must be because it's not like they're all <laughs> shopping. You know, can the be clothes have to fit somebody. And then if you like, if I had to go up to the next swimsuit <laughs> size or whatever, I have to go to a store that's called like Pig Taito, like the big size store, which is like a whole. <laughs> anyway, oh man, that's so hysterical. Yeah, um, for those who don't know, Tammy is it by no means a lot. Person, that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> it's okay. I've accepted oh, my fate here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so I was afraid. I, I had been afraid, like with surfing lessons too, that there wouldn't be a wetsuit that was large enough for I me. Am. But it's been fine. Yeah, I had that problem in Vietnam when I was trying to find a, hel- oh, a helmet yeah. to go on my head because I think, like you know, whereas Koreans mm-hmm. have giant heads, I think Vietnamese people have like. Normal size heads, maybe. Yeah. But it was like very hard to find a helmet that fit me because Wait, I was trying to you ride were one of those motorcycle- motorbikes on a motorcycle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like one of those little like scooters or something. Yeah. Couldn't find a helmet That's that hilarious. fit my head, you know, which is also a problem basically everywhere, but definitely was more of a problem in Vietnam than anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck? So you just head? rode with that one, or did you finally go to a big size? No, no, I shop? finally <laughs> found one that like. It was like kind of like pinching like everywhere on my head. It, like I had an immediate headache, you know, and like it like was kind of like on the top of my head barely, you know, like where <laughs> if like a strong gust of wind would have flown. flown so it offered no protection at all. You know, it it's offered like no totally protection. worthless. The only way that it would have helped is if I like gotten hit by a car and flown directly up in the air. <laughs> And then come directly back directly down. down. <laughs> yeah. So there's no movement. Like a projectile. <laughs> yeah. And then it would have like maybe helped. Or it might have also just caved in my head. Who knows? Like, uh, but yeah, it was a real problem. There. But yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't know why that happens. I guess people grow up in America. They eat like, you know, American foods or whatever. That's what You know, they're exposed told. to the American sun. The hormones and, then they be- and all that. I don't right. know. Right. They become these like large peasant folks that when they come back are like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to the the native populations okay so that sounds good surfing eight times now how many you've gone eight times i've been six times and i'm probably gonna try to do a couple more times it's getting cold so i have to figure out but they have the thick wetsuits yeah are you gonna come back are you gonna do it when you get back to new york i'm gonna try have you done it oh my god yeah it's cold in the winter so how are the waves at far rockaway for beginners in the winter, it's not, it's like, in the winter, it's a little bit challenging, but if you go, I mean, the best place for beginners to surf in the tri-state or, or not, yeah, mm-hmm. well, I don't know about New Jersey, but Long Beach, Long Island is actually quite nice. It's a real beach. You can sit okay. there. The waves are pretty good, and it's kind of like a nice vacation outside of the city. 
you know, whereas Rockaway, you still feel like you're in the city. Yeah. I just hate Rockaway. But without a car, why. you can't get to Long Beach, right? Yeah, I had a car. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. you could take the LIR and take like a new. No, I mean, it's impossible. It, it seems like, impossible. Yeah. I'll try to find a car friend. Yeah, you just find like one of those car rent, like car share thingies or something, yeah. and it'll be fine. Okay. All right. Well, that's enough talk. But um, <laughs> we wanted to talk today about a few things, right? And um, I don't know, you know, I don't know what order we should go in here, but like, I I I wrote about this show Mo. Yeah. Um, for my column, and I wanted to talk about it a bit on the show. I don't know if that's okay, but Mike, if you're listening, I'm sorry. You know, we're gonna just have to repurpose it. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be happy that we're talking about it. <laughs> um, Mo is a show that column. like uh, is you know it was written and stars Mo Amer, who is a Palestinian refugee who has been living in America for the majority of his life. Now, he used to live in Kuwait. I think he was born and raised till he was around 10 or something in Kuwait. And then when the first Gulf War happened, he had to come to the United States. His immigration story has lasted almost the entire time that he was here. And like the show really is pretty autobiographical. The main character is also named Mo. And uh, I think some of the stuff is different. But um, mostly it's like, you know, about a guy who grows up in Houston, mm-hmm. um, which is where Mo grew up. Have you watched it? Mm-hmm. I really like the show. I think the like for me, the Houston, like Houston as a character in the show is really interesting. I think it's right. shot really well. I thought you made some really good points in your column about like what kind of immigrant narrative is this? Does it depart from some of the standard tropes? Um do you want to talk about that kind of the just like you versus dignity porn thing? I thought that was a useful. Oh yeah, paradigm. that's something I thought of a while ago, which was yeah. like this idea of dignity porn, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, uh, I don't know. It's like kind of like shows people like Slumdog Millionaire, for example, yeah. right? Um, or or films about like people who are living in America, who are living as immigrants. And the point of the film is like, you did not know that these people exist, but they really suffer. But, you know, and then like at some point in the film, like maybe around minute, like 15 or something, someone tells a joke, you know, and the point is like, these people also tell jokes and the joke (laughs) might be funny, but like it's cut with so much solemnity and like so much like freighted with like all this like meaning that almost becomes impossible to laugh. Right. Like the point is like, oh, no, these people are also funny, right? And like, <laughs> yeah, like it, my, for me, the question is always just like, okay, who's the audience? You know, like, who are you trying to convince about this stuff? Um, that's the first part of it. Now, you could just say, well, I'm trying to convince the people who are going to watch this who are not from this community. It's important to, you know, quote, raise awareness or something like that. And I would kind of agree. Like, that's fine. I actually don't have too much of a problem with that, yeah. you know? But it's always just kind of like the saintliness of the characters, right? Um, the sort of way in which they deal with their their situations in like always good ways and they're always being like thwarted by someone bad, right? Um, I don't know. I find it very boring to a certain extent, right? Because it tells the same story over yeah. and over. I and think just like, maybe Hentified is a little bit like that. Have you seen that show? No, what's that? It's like a show about Chicanos in East LA, like new immigrants, but it has some of these same things like deportation and stuff, but there are these sort of like slightly too saintly characters, I think, 
It's right, very cheesy. Right, right. But I've watched, right. I still like it, but it was very cheesy. Yeah, I, I have not seen that. But like, you know, like most of the stuff that is like dignity porn is like most things, you know, about about like poor immigrants or poor people around the country. A lot of it, I, I had this line in there that didn't, I thankfully didn't make it in, but I was talking about how like, if it's a place where like a NYU Tisch film school grad goes with like a C300 camera and then like <laughs> brags to all of his friends on Facebook about being there, like that's probably dignity porn, you know? Gosh, I wonder <laughs> like, why they deleted that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a good one. I was like, good zigger, you know? Um, <laughs> Props so to your editor for saving So many documentaries are like that, yeah. you know? Um, now, I thought that this show was going to kind of be like that when I read about it, right? Because mm. it was like the way that Mo Amer, the comedian, talks about the show is like, he's like, oh, this is about inclusion. It's about being seen yeah. or whatever like that. And, I just, you know, that sort of stuff usually makes me roll my eyes out of my head where I'm just like, I don't like, you know, um, what what's the point of this, right? But uh, the show, I don't know. I thought it was a lot better than that, you know, and I don't. And it was mostly just because, like, I thought he was, like, kind of super engaging. But the Houston part was, like, the part I actually wanted to talk about yeah. on the show. Because, yeah. like, that's what sort of makes it good, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I started looking for housing prices on <laughs> Zillow <laughs> in Houston and while watching the show. It's a lot show, cheaper than know. in Berkeley, but it's gone up a lot, right? People talk a lot about gentrification in Houston, too. Oh, do they? Yeah. Well, Houston is kind of this like housing miracle, right? Because they don't have a homelessness problem or at least a much smaller homelessness problem. And like, you know, all the housing wonks, I think rightfully, right, say that like it's because they can build wherever they want because there's like it's basically the Wild West and they can just build anything wherever. Just rings you know? of highways. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or like they can just build SROs somewhere if they feel like it, mm. you know, um, they can just build whatever to try and deal with to keep up with demand. Um, but I, I do think like, um, and that's also part of the reason why it's such an interesting place for like refugees totally, and, yeah. and immigrants, right? Because like, they're just moving there in large numbers. I think Houston is almost the second biggest city in the country at this point. It's definitely has the most immigrants of any mm -hmm. city, I think. Um, it definitely is like the most diverse city in the country right yeah. now. And it's, it's interesting how like that hasn't really gotten too much of like a, of like a mainstream media play. Yeah, I think people are always surprised by that when it's put up in articles around, like with Queens, right? In terms of like linguistic right. and ethnic diversity. Um, yeah, one thing I was thinking about while watching this show too is, and you say this in your story, but how, okay, so you got Mo, his girlfriend is Mexican. She's Mexican, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> his best friend is Nigerian. He goes to this um, Vietnamese drug dealer. And it feels totally seamless. Like the there aren't the he's not trying to like slot in different racial categories and make this rainbow stew kind of thing. Right. Um, rainbow stew. <laughs> it reminded me a little bit of our conversation with like Gary Steingart in his novel. Right. Like the right. way that you can have a place like Queens or a leaf in Houston and it just it's this portrait that you kind of don't have to explain. And I think, yeah. I think Mo in his interviews has definitely made this show sound more checkboxy than it actually feels when you're experiencing it. Right, right. I think that's probably because of Houston, right? Like yeah. because you would just agree that you would just assume if you know anything about the city that these types of people are in constant interaction with one right. another, which I think is generally true of that city. Even if parts of it are like segregated out, it's like, right. you know, like it's a still an extremely diverse city. 
And it's like different than the type of stuff where like the diversity seems so crazy, you know, like where you can imagine people in like a writer's room being like, hey, what if like the male school jock bully was Asian, you know, <laughs> like what if that, you know, and then everyone's like, oh, damn, it'll be the first jock Asian bully in the history of television, you know, and then they like put it on it like the it's like, wait, what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, not to stereotype, but like, this is clearly you're patting yourself on the back for this. Is you that know? The, or, the other part of your argument was like the just like you story? Where it's oh, like, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like, that's like the other half right. of it where it's just like, hey, you know, I also like, how do I fit in with like, in like this new world? And it's like, and then in the end, they're just like, oh, yeah, you know, there's not much difference between. And it's just like, why? Like, well, that what would, are we doing? I here? feel like that's like the crazy rich Asians thing where everyone was like, oh, yeah, we can we can also have our own mediocre, like big wedding. Oh, know, yeah. Kind of yeah, like rom com yeah. type show now or movie now. And I, I don't know. I wasn't that satisfying to me. But... I still haven't seen it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> You're the whole time. That's the, I have like the. That's my, I like, I think I've said this on the show before, but like my version of like, I don't watch television, right? right? You know, which is also something I say, you know, but like, we're only at version, double speed. My second version of it is like, oh, actually, I have not seen Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. And then I like smile at the person in the most condescending, awful way possible. Um, <laughs> look, I'm not going to watch it. But uh, did you see yeah, Rami? I mean, I haven't, but okay. it's right on the, it's right on, it's on my list. Yeah. Mo is in that, right? Yeah. So like, I think Rami maybe like EP'd the show or something, but right, right, he so did, yeah. Mo, Mo is a character in Rami. Most people who have seen Rami think that Rami gets, so I think Rami actually plays with some similar things, right? He's a very flawed character, almost like an anti-hero, um, operating like in a very diverse, like immigrant situation. That show is like much more though, like kind of like an Arab American show, I guess. Right. Um, but Rami in season two, for most people who've seen it, becomes unlikable to a point where it becomes like difficult to watch. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. it's interesting with Mo because Mo is a really flawed character and can be extremely mean. But at least in season one, there's enough sweetness to leaven out yeah. the situation. Whereas for Rami, it's like a little, it might be tipping over the edge at this point. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to watch it then. That sounds super interesting. <laughs> yeah. Because like I was like, I think he's like kind of like he's like in the show, he's just so unpleasant <laughs> at times, but he's also very funny, yeah. you know, and like there's something about these big dudes, you know, who are like really loud and they <laughs> just the physicality. Just very, of, yeah, yeah, they're just kind of appealing in a way yeah, on yeah. screen, you know, and he like has whatever that is. Right. Like, I mean, like. I think, you know, like I, one of the notes on here is like fresh out the boat. I think Eddie Wong has that too, mm, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I think Eddie is just like, like there's something about him on screen where you're just like, okay, you know, like I get it. <laughs> like <laughs> this person, these are some good jokes and this person is is like likable. Mm-hmm. And if he's going to take me through this restaurant, I'm just going to watch because it's like, it, it, there's just something yeah. about it. But yeah, I do think that the star of it is sort of Houston. And I hope that there's more stuff about it. You know, mm-hmm. one of my favorite pieces of writing from the past few years was Brian Washington writing about like wow. making, did you read this piece? Remember when he like was making Sunduba, I think, right? With his yeah, mother. Yeah. 
he, and it was because Houston and his stories is so appealing. I love. Oh that. yeah, no, no. Right. I mean, like he makes it awesome. Yeah. And uh, and you know, I don't know. I appreciate his writing because there's so much like emotion in it. You know, like it's just like so, and it, it's beautifully written. But it's also just like he's like going for whatever he's doing. I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. But um, you know, he's the one that for me at first. I mean, I have been to Houston. I've seen it, but yeah. he's the one that sort of like started to like make it in my head seem like this super appealing place, yeah. you know. And this show really sort of took it to another. Like, it did the same thing for mm-hmm. me, where I was just like, kind of want to move to Houston. It would be pretty <laughs> cool. I would have to sit in my car all There's day, so and, much like, driving. drive around. Yeah, that's the one thing I think. Of. <laughs> yeah, <drive around. laughs> but I don't know. My favorite things in life are like you know. Uh, eating at cheap ethnic restaurants. And so, like, you know, I think it's probably the best place for that in America, right? I mean, it's got to be, it's there or LA. It's one of the two. Um, okay. Is there anything yeah. else? Are you going to be writing a lot about TV, do you think? No. Because <laughs> you never watch it. No. Yeah, I don't think I watch enough <laughs> television. To watch I'm really it. glad you watch this particular show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I watch it. You know, I'll tell you why I watch it was because, like, uh, my friend Nassim, Mm-hmm. texted me and said that he really liked it and then i was going on this flight and so i downloaded oh, it nice and then i watched that. it yeah but um nasim was like oh this is like as close to like something that you know feels like good yeah. you know because he has a very similar background to to uh to mo he's palestinian too yeah but also like had you know family moved when gotcha uh yeah and I think his family went to Lebanon okay. um, and not Kuwait. But, uh, yeah, he loved it. And so I yeah. was like, okay, I'm going to try it. And then I was, like, sort of sucked in immediately just because totally. he's so compelling. And that's, like, the thing. is, just, like, half of this stuff is just, like, is your lead character, like, a star or is he not a star? You yeah. Know, like, and this guy seems to have, like, enough charisma where it's just, like, okay. Like, the next thing you do, I'm going to watch, even if it's not this show. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, have to, I like the show much better than his stand-up, too. Yeah, um, yeah, me too, me too. Which is kind of, I, I don't know, that surprised me a little bit. I don't know what it was. His stand-up gets a little roady, I think. Um, but the show felt pretty fresh to me. Yes. Yeah. What does Rhodey mean? I don't know. Like wrote in the sense that I felt like he just Oh wrote. Yeah. I thought you meant Rhodey, like oh, no. as in like Well wrote Rhodey is not a word, but like right. yeah, I that he was kind of looping into certain predictable patterns of like immigrant stand up somehow. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough it's a tough thing. I mean totally. Like it's not like stand up in these spaces is very hard, I think, you know. And everyone's kind of doing a Margaret Cho thing. Yeah. Right. Except they don't like some of them decide to do the accent. They're like, I'm going to do Margaret Cho, but I'm not going to do the accent that she did, you know, because I'm like too woke. Some of them just do the accent. It's just like, listen, Margaret Cho's Korean mom accent was very accurate and very funny. Yeah. You know? I, oh, yeah. That's like one of my top 10, like, I will defend this person to the death. Uh, <laughs> <people>. <laughs> Margaret Cho is so problematic. And like, like she can be as problematic or cringe as, as like, you know, as one can get out to defend her. I'll just be like, listen, you know. <laughs> she That's was a, a case pioneer. in which the stand-up was better than the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, for sure. Yeah. 
The stand-up in the beginning. I don't know. I was just thinking about it. It's like when she started doing comedy, she was like 16 years old. You know, it's like this like 16 year old, like giant headed Korean woman, you know, (laughs) I can say it because that was the compelling part for you. You're like, (laughs) as a fellow giant headed Korean, but like, (laughs) she was like 16 and her, she's like woman from San Francisco, you know, like, uh, and her parents like own this like weird little bookshop, you know, down on, and like, you know, like. What, what was she doing doing stand-up that back in the 80s? It's crazy, yeah. you know? All right. Okay. Speaking <laughs> of which, we're going to do another pop culture thing. You wanted to talk about the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs album. And so, the notes here say, best band ever. I love them so much. Back after nine years. <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to read my notes. I'll embarrass me. Um, May had this question because, Jay, you're always tweeting about music, mostly from the 90s, about if we were excited about anything happening right now. And so it's probably a cliche. I really love the AAS. I have all their stuff um, back like when, I guess like about 10 years ago when they were really popular, like I went to see them. I don't know. I'm a huge fan. Um, Their new album is very good. And it's kind of, I mean, I think there's been more analysis of them recently because of like the Japanese breakfast Mitsuki kind of like, right. like half Asian woman rocker phenomenon sort of thing. And, and they're touring right now with Japanese breakfast and the Linda Lindas, which I think is very sweet and funny. Oh, yeah. um, and I think Karen O has been talking like she had an interview with our friend Gia about kind of being in this new time of attention to, you know, these particularly like raced or gendered like rockers what her mixedness means, like how she's digesting that kind of stuff. Um, so I think it's just interesting to think about like what they kind of mean now or what she means now, like as a pop cultural figure. And also just the consistency of the music, like her voice still sounds like so good. Yeah. I've always yeah. loved Brian Chase's drumming. I love that spare sound. Um, did you, are you into them? Did you, were you? Yeah, I was into them yeah. when like back in the day, Yeah, you know, but like I, I, um, I find the thing kind of interesting because like, all right. If we think about it statistically, are there more like music acts that are Asian American than there were back like in the 90s and aughts? Right. I don't know. Are there like, uh, let's see, there was like James Eha, who was like the yeah. guitarist for like the biggest band in the world or not the biggest. I mean, I really do think when like Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness mm-hmm. came out, Smashing Pumpkins probably was like one of the biggest bands amazing in the world. Band. Yeah. Um, and then... We had uh, the dude from String Cheese Incident. (laughs) Lest we forget. Yeah, well, no, it's a big big deal. (laughs) Um, No, I guess there are more. I guess there are more. No, I think that's a good point, though. I mean, I think that's part of the question of like, is it an Asian American? Like, what does it mean to be an Asian American band? You know, like, you just need like one person. All right, Um, right. And then like these conversations around like the mix, like mixed race of two more races it is interesting because like the conversation is not the same when it comes to say anderson pock who is like more famous than any of these people you know and uh is like in a band with like one of the biggest pop stars in the world right and so um anderson pock like you know like he in a lot of ways did not grow up in this like kind of thing where he's like oh i choose to be it, you know, yeah. like now I choose to be Asian and what matters is that I make that choice, which is like, fine, whatever, you know? 
But Anderson Pot grew up with a Korean mother and hung out with like only Korean people. Yeah, and he's growing married up. to a Korean woman, and he like... yeah, and his like best friends are like Korean rappers. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Like, yeah, he's like, like the most actually like kind of transnational or like you know what I mean. Right, 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 right. Like it's not like an identity thing yeah. that like, and that's what's interesting to me is just like how much of this stuff now is like kind of imposed, right? And right. how much of it is like a thing that is sort of in the zeitgeist and then how much of it really is like a change in like representation and music right because um like i was just kidding about like james eha and like the string cheese incident but there were there were musicians back then if you looked at rap right yeah. i was thinking like i was thinking about that like um uh all the way back to like two live crew right like there's like chad hugo right like yeah. the with neptune's like biggest like when when they did uh when they did the clips album like it's like it like chad hugo is like a huge celebrity mm -hmm. right like there's like the automator there's like all sorts of like asian representation in rap Lincoln there Park. was like oh yeah mike shinoda yeah. right like mike shinoda uh there was also like the dj honda was like a oh, big yeah. deal in like in like yeah. hip-hop circles like around 1996 or something like that and so I don't know. I find the conversation interesting because like it is centered around, um, you know, it is centered around like sort of half Asian women. Yeah, I think right? the gender thing is. Yeah, right. It's really. Um, and so it is like I think it's an important like I have I'm not saying anything bad about this. Right. But I do find it interesting that like it's now a conversation, whereas like if you grew up listening to rap in the 90s like me then it's like it, you have like a different access to like rep Asian representation in music because mm -hmm. the only thing you actually want is like Asian rappers, you know? <laughs> and then there were Asian rappers, right? Like, I mean, like Mountain Brothers or whatever, right? Like they're like very explicitly Asian rappers like that. And then there were rappers who were Asian, right? Like, I don't know, like Snacky Chan or like Jackie Chain or something. <laughs> Those are two. <laughs> yeah, do you, do you hear Jackie, know, Chain? Jackie Chain? Oh, man, Jackie Chain was great. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course gin uh, and all that yeah right um, and gin and like uh yes gin was like the big one yeah and so um i think it's like a gendered thing right like i don't think, you think like yeah 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 i don't know what to make of it. i mean the interesting thing about karen o for me at that time was like the koreanness the asianness like wasn't a thing that she was bringing forward or that actually people commented on that much and i think that's what right. i actually liked about it that it wasn't right. a thing that was I don't know, somehow like legitimating their popularity or that she was trying to kind of ride. Right. Um, now, as you're saying, like the question is like for somebody like Japanese Breakfast or Mitski, like are were they kind of seeking that out or was it just like so thematically obvious in their music that you couldn't not comment on it? Or is it that like, you know, Asian white mixed women are so appealing to the public that that was like picked up in oh. this moment? Like, I don't know. There's all these, I think it, so, but for now, the way that Karen O is like talking about her race and her identity is very different than she had talked about them when they right, were at the height of their true. popularity. So I, fa I found that kind of weird, interesting, you know, but I'm glad that the music is still kind of the music. Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't think, that, look, I don't think there's any cynicism in the way that Mitski or Japanese Breakfast or, you, you know, like I think that they put that at the, core of their music that's the thing it's just in like, the songs like Mitski's yeah. music especially in first two albums is like very oriented towards that I remember reading yeah. a 
interview with her and she was basically just like i just like i'm making music for like asian american girls you mm-hmm. know <laughs> and like you know like i really respected that because like and then it was strange to me that it was so popular. <laughs> you know, it got like, so huge. Like, when does anything that's made for us like become popular? You know, but it was just like, man, good, like good for her because I, I actually like I, I like her music quite a bit. You know, and um, and I was, I, I don't know, I just found it like, I don't, I, but I don't think there's any sort of like, oh, well, we're going to capitalize on this in that way you know like I, that that's like that's a level of cynicism that we that exists in hollywood and not in many other places you know? <laughs> i think also like you know capitalizing in indie rock is like you know it has its right that's what i mean it's like i i really doubt that either of them ever thought that they were going to be famous yeah. Yeah. you know yeah, yeah, and yeah, like totally. it's like you know whereas like you know in hollywood right like you construct things to be famous right. you know and right, then right. you can capitalize on it and say a bunch of bullshit in an interview <laughs> you know and then, <laughs> and then everyone in the know rolls their eyes you know like that's just like that's true that happens right but like in indie rock like come on you know like, I don't think, <laughs> whatever <laughs> happened to um remember tao wen oh yeah she i yeah, like i know her i like oh really i liked that style yeah, or i've lot. met her a couple of times um, yeah sort of like an indie pop type yeah of thing. a little yeah. folky sometimes yeah. and i did she just kind of stop making music or i don't know yeah. i don't know she lived in san francisco when i lived in san francisco okay. is yeah. she cool <laughs> yeah she was cool i only met her twice but she was very cool um intimidating cool you know yeah. like so cool that i was like I was like, I don't know, like I'm just this dude. <laughs> like you, know? you look down at yourself in your sandals, and you're like, Dang. Well, I was like 26 <laughs> years old at the time, you know. I had never, like, it wasn't like I, I was like a bum basically, you know. And I, like, I had like three hundred dollars. If that, I probably owed a bunch of people money, you know. And I was just like, man. Do you I don't think know. musicians I hope are the category of out. artists that make you feel the least cool? Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I talk about you know Zach Carter, friend of the pod. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he used to be in like a punk band, I think. And oh wow, he, I was talking to Isn't him. Isn't he like he, the guy who wrote the book on Kane? On Kane? Yeah, John yeah. Kane? And he was like, being a musician is wow. way cooler than being a writer. And I was like, obviously, obviously. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's no such thing as a cool writer you know like you have to be like maybe there's four of them you know like is now scarred cool i guess he's cool you know but, he, but not in the way that like a rocker is cool right he's like less cool than any type of like yes, musician exactly. out there like every musician is cooler i think like, musicians yeah i think musicians probably have the cool factor i used to be really into like painters like the vibe around visual artists but i actually think musician or it's better with musicians the best thing possible would to be like and be a musician in like a band that doesn't have to tour that much <laughs> and is really popular and people love, you know? I don't like this band, but like being in Pearl Jam would be awesome, you know, for example. <laughs> I like Pearl Jam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> being in Pearl Jam would be amazing, you know? Like every all your yeah. shows sell out, like people love your music. You've had some massive hits, you know, but now you're just kind of like making the music that I don't know. It seems amazing. Like, yeah. um, yeah, it's too bad. I would have much rather been in a band, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, being a writer podcaster is like the most like it's like humiliating in a lot of ways, you know. <laughs> like, 
Who is cool oh among us? Nobody's cool. I love humiliating. You know? We're just like, well, it's just coolest, like the whole thing is just a bunch cool of dorks. Who's been on the show? Like Vincent and Hua are pretty cool. They're cool, but like, you know, they're not like, they're not like rock or cool. No. And they'll tell like you in that, the you world know? of writers, though, would you just oh, call yeah, no, humiliating? No. They're about as cool as it they gets. They're not humiliating. Writers, yeah. <laughs> they're not humiliating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's limited to the, of them would, the I bet both of them would turn and be like, you know, like a musician. Of course, we all would, you know, of course we would. For I would sure. much if rather be in like a, If I was like in a mid-tier band, you know, <laughs> I would turn the, I would turn this in for that every any day of the week, you know. <laughs> okay, let's talk about our big topic today, which is that I wanted to talk about this a while back, but yeah. um Ariel Angel, who's friend of the show, is the editor of uh, Jewish Currents wrote this essay. I think it was back in September, right? And it was about, um, it's called Beyond Grievance. And I, I wanted to revisit this because I think it's something that like is pretty relevant today in a lot of ways, but it's relevant to like all the themes in the show. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is a long essay. We were going to put the link to it in the show notes, but it begins with sort of a, um, it begins with like a sort of, flashback to the uh, synagogue attack in Colleyville, Texas, right? And it is sort of about Ariel's observation about how Jewish people and other people online were sort of saying, trying to almost like fill this space of like, why isn't this being talked about more? You know, where are we in terms of like when something happens to us, right? Like what, how much do people care? Right. And what does that actually say about us? Right. Does it mean that people don't care about us at all? You know, mm -hmm. does it mean that people think we're OK and so they are not going to be as upset? You know, like, does it mean that we have a sense of privilege or does it mean like, you know, like and this is basically now like just like the language of 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 online. Right. It is all just like what about ism and like sort of mm -hmm. grievance competitions. Right. And um, I don't know. What do you think about this? Yeah. I mean, she's obviously talking about the Jewish community, but it's certainly a conversation that we have a lot in Asian America. Right. And through this right. period of hate crimes and this discussion of violence against Asians, we've been talking about it kind of nonstop since 2020. Um, I thought it was really helpful and illuminating and um yeah, I think the fact that like so many different communities are kind of trying to sort this out from a leftist perspective of like, how do you construct a meaningful politics, especially like a coalitional politics? Um, she cites Femi Taiwo, who I know you interviewed on your um, right. for your newsletter at the Times, Jay, and his book Elite Capture has been talked about a lot. But yeah, just this idea of if we burrow so much into like our ideas of being harmed, then what do what kind of currency or like relation do we have with other groups? Um, I guess my question though, I mean, she's trying to figure out, she's trying to, I think, just analyze that and she doesn't necessarily have like a proposal for getting out of it. I think it's an extremely hard thing to get out of. Right. Um, and I don't know that I have a good answer for it. Yeah. There is like, there's this distinction that's made, right. Um, that is between, um, this question of like, whether or not you're sort of living through pain right or whether you and whether you yes. sort of you're dealing with it as as pain or whether you've sort of monetized it not even monetized but where you've sort of converted it into a grievance right mm -hmm. and that um 
you know, like it, it is interesting to me because like, I think that that type of competition right now does happen quite a bit. Right. And we do see it in the Asian community, um, right now. And it takes on a lot of forms, right? Like now, one of the forms that it takes on is like people saying, nobody cares when we get attacked, so we're going to defend ourselves and, um, we're going to go ahead and, uh, like we're going to basically become like race nationalists in a way. Right. And like, I, I understand that impulse, right. Especially if like you live in one of these areas where a lot of people are attacked or if you're like traumatized by watching these videos, right. Which it's hard not to be sometimes, right. Like, um, and you basically say, well, nobody cares when I look online. Right. Um, and that makes me feel lonely. And so I'm going to take refuge in other people who I know who, who care, yeah. who also feel like sort of slighted by this thing. Now, like the one thing about that is that like, I am like really sort of like, I think one of the big problems that we're going to be facing or face right now is that like people's and Ariel goes into this quite a bit, which is that people's response online and how much they gauge that people care about yeah. the thing that happens to their people is a terrible way to measure whether or not something is actually happening. But it is also the way in which so many people think about the world. And so it's not something where you can just be like, oh, well, just don't look online. It'll yeah. be okay. Be like, no, it's actually like, it's like a thing, you know? Like recently in sports, we had this problem where like, you know, um, that, you know, with the sort of with, um, the coach of the Boston Celtics. Right. And, um, people are like, well, everyone's talking about a consensual relationship, consensual relationship, but nobody's talking about like Brett Favre stealing millions of dollars from like the state of Mississippi. Right. It's just like, <laughs> first of all, people are talking people about are, Brett right, Favre right. talking, you know, <laughs> there's like a, there are like several investigations, not even from the media, but like from the government and from like justice departments looking into this thing. Like, but then again, it's like, you know, I do think that people process things this way, you know, like they process it through seeing how many people are mad online and what's trending. Right. right. And, and then they form their politics based on that. Right. And like, I think if you did look at Asian American attacks against Asian Americans, like, and the only barometer you ever used was like, are many, 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 many blue check people and big accounts mad about this thing, then you would come to the conclusion that people don't really right. care. Right. Um, but who knows if that's real or not, but I don't know. It's real in that, like, this is all, this is how a lot of people are like thinking about the world right now. Of, yeah. And we're, yeah, the recognition politics and we are online so much. I think right. the ways, the way in which like also her essay is relevant to Asian America and why I think Jews and Asians are always kind of in this conversation, especially around hate crimes is because she, I think she's also saying that like the grievance aspect comes in when it happens to a when it's belonging to a group that most people assume is doing really fine. Right. So it's like, if you're Asian or Jewish, you're supposed to feel like everything is okay and that you're doing so well in society. But then if you actually are in pain, it's so like affirming that Ariel's like talking about it as pleasure that we're like deriving a certain kind of pleasure on it and then kind of transforming it for this grievance purpose. I think that's a really, um, yeah, I do think that's hap I think I think that can very easily happen. I think it's like a natural process and that it should be controlled and like we should be very thoughtful about it. Um I guess I'm curious if you think I don't know, do you have a response to like how to not do that 
do you think that it's a certain stage that you have to pass through? <laughs> I, I just think it like, I think that there's, it interfaces so well with a certain type of like rampant narcissism, you know, that is going on, which I sometimes like, I'm not, I'm not like exempt from this. Right. But it is basically like, why not me? Right. You know? And like, why wasn't I, why aren't you talking about me? You know, like recently, like somebody attacked me, like I wrote a piece attacking me and one of the responses was like, because I was talking about how like in the Bay Area, New York City, some of these places, like mm-hmm. uh, kids who are half Asian and half white, like the class, con- the, when people see them, they like assume that these are like very wealthy people, you know, right. and that, um, and what somebody responded to me and said, not all mixed race, white, Asian people are like, you know, wealthy. Some of us are teachers, some of us are social work, like whatever. And I was just like, I was just like, all right, okay, you know, but like, like, are, <laughs> is there no way to talk about things without acknowledge? Like, the only thing that this person wanted was acknowledgement that mm-hmm. that he exists, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I was just like, that's so common right now, right? Like, that's sort of like the kind of like narcissism of like this must be about me, and the and online really does feed into it quite mm-hmm. a bit, right? Like, um, it's always about like the exceptions, right? It's always about like the people who can prove that they suffer more and therefore they must be acknowledged before everything else. And what it does is it means that any type of comparative like framework that you're trying to build or any type of like larger narrative that you're trying to write, like actually is like very difficult to write because it's always going to be sort of like toppled over by the need to like acknowledge these exceptions. Right. And that like, maybe that's good. Maybe that's healthy. Right. Like maybe it's good that to not speak in like totalizing phrases about everything. And yet at the same time, I don't really see like the correction coming from a space of like, you're wrong. Yeah. Right. Like the, it's coming from a space of like, what about me? Right. Like, what about me? And like, you can't say, I don't really care about you. Like, you know, <laughs> like you're not really that relevant to this conversation. Right. Um, and also a lot of times it's like, well, the thing that you, you existing actually doesn't disqualify the thing that I'm saying, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of rich people who become teachers, you know, like, um, like not a lot, but there's some, you know, like, and I would imagine that like, there's some rich people who become social workers, you know, like, it's like, like a what logic you, game or something. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? And like, how am I even supposed to respond to this? Right. Um, now I don't mean that this tweet is like, uh, important in any sort of way. I'm just saying like, that is kind of how people online process a lot of things, right? Like, it's like, what about me? What about me? What about me? And when that is matched with like a history of like oppression or a history of, of, um, something that people can kind of thread together to, then I think it does become like a, like it, I don't even know if it's a problem or not, but it certainly is like a powerful force within, within the way that people think about themselves. Yeah. Yeah, we, um, there was this other piece from much longer ago in Descent around the privilege walk. Have you ever been to a social justice thing where they made you do this? No, no, I would leave though. I like literally, (laughs) I would just leave, yeah. So I have been to a social justice retreat where we had to do this. And also I used to be in a reading group in law school where we did this and I like, so if people haven't heard about it, basically it's this exercise 
in which everyone starts at a certain line and then the moderator calls out like particular things about your life. Like you were raised by two parents who went to college or you were raised in a home that had whatever, a hundred thousand dollars of income or like you're white or you're black and you take steps forward or backward to like measure your privilege. Um, and it's, there's a good critique of it in, in dissent where basically it talks about how this is actually a perversion of the language of privilege that was analyzed by this scholar, Peggy McIntosh, in which she actually was just putting forward this concept to be able to, for people to just reflect, but actually build coalitions and not like just, I guess, one up each other in terms of suffering. Um, but yeah, I do think the kind of, and I guess we read um, Robin DiAngelo <laughs> Yeah, during our book club with Andy Um, but you know this whole it seems like we're in a moment and maybe this is like a long moment and we've been here before but where it's all about distinguishing levels of oppression instead of like trying to figure out like what the common ground is right 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 and Um, that's like that's something I actually have no idea like how pervasive it is because I do know that like anybody I talk to who is in a workplace Mm -hmm. right they all have to do this stuff now. Yeah. And I think that it's like, that is like, means that it is really saturated. But in an intellectual spaces right now, I think it, there's like a pushback from it. Yeah. But obviously that doesn't really matter if the people in corporate <laughs> DEI training are having to do this well, stuff. Well, maybe it'll know? trickle down eventually. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We need like 10 years, yeah, you know, 10 and years two best-selling that. books. But like, um, but it does seem to be ubiquitous in a way that is yeah. like, you know, like kind of sad to me. Right. And um, because I think that the general critique that Ariel is giving, the one that Femi also wrote about mm-hmm. is basically like you have to like the act is to like, like I think Femi says like, you know, like all politics, coalitional politics, it's like about finding common ground amongst differences. Right. right. And if the only thing that is happening is like this arms race to figure out who is the most oppressed right then and ranking people in order of that right then like the only thing that then you're leading with the parts that are different right and that like there's no way to sort of create any type of coalition in that sort of way because like people are just going to be looking for their ranking right and like i do think that this happens like in like, I don't know, like there's 5,000 exceptions to this happening in organizing spaces, but I think that like a lot of people would say that it's happening more than it used to be, mm-hmm. you know? And like, even outside of organizing spaces, I think even just finding political, like common ground, like it's very difficult these yeah. days. Um, actually going back to Mo, that was the one, that's my favorite thing about Mo is that like, you expect him to start launching in all this, like, you know, like Palestinian, like, you know, like stuff, but he only really does it in moments where he like needs something, you know? (laughs) And then like, he does it in like this like way that's like, clearly he's scamming, you know? And I love that about the show because it's so honest. Yeah. It's so honest. It's just like, like he's a very pious guy, but he's like pious in like the actual sense of the term, you know, like where it's like, it's like a little bit fraudulent, you know? And so, um, I don't know. It's like, that's like where like sometimes I I remember there's a period of time when I would like think about myself in this sort of way, like almost as a thought exercise, you know, where I'd be like, you want to talk about generational trauma, you know, like my half of my grandparents, half of my relatives, like, I have, I don't even know if they're alive or dead and I'll never know if they're alive or dead, you know, cause they're all in North Korea and then everyone else was killed by the Japanese, you know, like, <laughs> like you win. 
yeah, do I win? You know? <laughs> like half my family has disappeared, you know, like I have no idea where they are anymore. Um, and then everyone else is dead. Right. Like, and then, uh, and then the U S colonized my, my parents' country. <laughs> you know? Like, do I win? You know? <laughs> but I don't ever think of myself that way. Do you? Like, I don't think about myself in like the lineage of like all that historical <laughs> trauma. Maybe I should, I'm not saying I shouldn't, but I just don't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it does seem like the kind of stuff that Femi is talking about. I mean, his book is, and his argument has gotten a lot of attention. So right. hopefully people in DEI will start paying attention to some of that. I do think, I'm sure that somebody who has a more sophisticated view than I do, which isn't that hard, of our political economy and like whatever Marxist history would have something to say about like, is this what happens when we reach this point where our inequality, the way that resources are distributed in our society are so extreme that everyone clustered at the bottom, just like we're fighting for scraps in the way that in this particular moment we're refracting that is through these questions of like very minute distinctions of privilege. Well, I don't, I think that would be true if these fights were happening at the bottom, right? But these fights are happening at the top, Not right? Like that's though. the like, idea. You were just saying even in organizing spaces, which aren't, you know, like even in some working class conversations, like this is a thing that is layered on top of whatever political and economic conversation you're having. Okay. But like the core of it, right? Like the place where this sort of exists in its purest form is the academy. You know, it's in media. It's in elite spaces, right? Like where, where these types of fights happen. I think that's generally true, you know, and I think that it's not necessarily um, if it was a symptom of like just income inequality and fighting for scraps. And I think that would be it. Now, in the academy, it's very interesting because you have these Jessica Krug figures, right? Like who like (laughs) literally pretend to be. Can we bring her back into the discourse, by the way? I, I feel like it's been too long. <laughs> We've been talking about Rachel Dolezal for 10 years, and Jessica Krug like, gets like two minutes. Like, <laughs> she gets like three oh days, and then she's off. Like She was like, she was way more, like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to make a comparative decision, like, statement about Rachel Dolezal. And, and, um, <laughs> We're doing Krug, the privilege you know? luck of the yeah. fake minorities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh but, you know, like, like, I would just say that Rachel Dolezal like actually lived the life of like a, you know, like of uh, for a while. Right. Like she tried to like, she was like, you know, she tried. Yeah. Right. Like Jessica Charles was just like an academic, right. you know, who <laughs> 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 would like record unhinged videos of her talking and like, I don't even know what accent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, be like don't come around here essay i'm just like what are you doing you know? <laughs> like, um jessica Krug, like uh so you have that right like and that is born like the best theory about that is that it's born out of like a deep anxiety of like about like whether or not these people can actually work in right. these spaces right and whether they're welcome to work in them and then something breaks in their brain and then they decide to just be that person like it's not i don't really find it to be a particularly satisfying uh, like there are other precarious places where people don't sure. like pretend they're another yeah. race, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, but so maybe um, you get more credit in that space than in other spaces. Yeah. I think at the Academy, maybe it is that you can pull it off. <laughs> you can kind of pull it off for a while. <laughs> um, but in those spaces where like jobs are obviously extremely rare right now. Right. And where there's a fighting for resources, right? Like, 
I can see that that would be true there, right? Like where people would start hammering themselves over with increasingly heavy hammers that are weighted with like another line of like, oh, well, I went back to 18, like 20, you know, and like I looked into the history of like the Mongolians in Korea or something like that. And I've decided that I'm even more oppressed than I was before, you know, and so I win. Like that probably just happens in the academy though, right? I don't, I can't think of anywhere else it happens. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I mean, who else would even care, you know? But it definitely, I think it does happen there. Yeah. I don't know. I think it happens to some extent. And I think it fuels some of the discontent we see, like, in conversations around, like, jobs and displacement, for sure. Um, okay. It sounds different because it's not, people right, aren't right, doing right, the privilege right. walk at, like, the <laughs> temp work, you know, agency. Um Oh, yeah. Well, whether uh, yeah. or not like <laughs> questions about race are being asked in those spaces, absolutely. Well, sure. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But I don't think it's like a, well, although I don't know, you know, like this LA City Council thing is like an interesting example oh of that, right? Because yeah. like, for the, I don't know, like, I, I'm not going to explain it all, but hopefully everybody Horrifying. listening knows, which is really like these, these Latino City Council people are talking about themselves and like, kind of like comparing themselves to like the, the, the black the black leaders in Los Angeles, you know, <laughs> and they're like basically doing like a privilege walk type of thing <laughs> while being deeply racist, yeah. you know? Astonishing um, the take, yeah. Yeah. That's like the most, like, you know, like when you, when people, like, people tease up things and they're like explosive um, yeah. <laughs> recording. And you're always like, I don't know how explosive it could have been, you know? Uh-huh. And then, and it's like, you know, like somebody who's like the city parks manager of like, you know, Gross Point, Michigan, like, uh, who's like posted something like an audio file on, on Facebook where he talks about how much he hates like X group, you know? And you're just like, who cares? You know? But this one was like, explosive. really like it gets, yeah. it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gustavo Ariano, you know, the LA Times yeah, uh columnist. He wrote it he wrote a column about it that was pretty good where oh, I yeah, think okay. it starts with it like as you keep listening, it somehow gets worse. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. That guy's a very good columnist, by the way. He is, um, yeah. Yeah. He's like he like has a very good sense of humor. And he doesn't seem to take the like I bet he takes the job very seriously. Yeah. But on the page it doesn't seem like he's taking it that seriously. Right. And like, it's very, very engaging to read. Yeah. Even And especially when he's wrong, where I'm just like, that's fucking crazy. I can't believe he said that. <laughs> he is kind of brave with his takes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He'll yeah. put himself you, out there for sure. His piece on, on this was quite good. We'll okay, uh, cool. maybe we'll put like a link to it. It was basically just about like how like, look, this isn't even like this goes beyond like your, what was it like, um, like, goes about like oh yeah i think it was like this is like beyond your like cholo libertarian like friends at the like cookout you know saying crazy <laughs> shit <laughs> basically like, like this is like a whole other level of like you know problematic talk where i was just like yeah <laughs> like, <it was> like, <laughs> the stuff they were saying was like repulsive like my some of it i was just like i was just in like i very like i was actually offended you know where it's just like <laughs> Like, I, and generally, it's not something I feel very often, you know? It but was like, grotesque. I, yeah, I was just yeah. like, like kind of like if I saw them, I would like, I would feel sick, yeah. you know? I'd just be like, you're disgusting. And one <laughs> of them was also the head of the Labor Federation. Right, no, that he's so the head of the... Like, 
So definitely right. the union world has some a lot of work to do. Like I think that was a real shocker for a lot of people. I know. Well, look, maybe all this DEI stuff is necessary, you know. <laughs> I know. No, I do sometimes have these thoughts where like I like think, oh, it's all so silly, it's all so silly. And then I like go to a place like a, you know, like a PTA meeting or something like that. Yeah. And I see these like white parents like saying crazy ass shit. And right. I'm like, and I can see the other parents like squirming, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, this is not a good dynamic to have, you know, where it's like, these people are just so awful that maybe they should check their fucking privilege a little bit. <laughs> but does the DEI stuff just discipline them into silence or, you yeah, know? But that's better. That's my argument. <laughs> that is better though. Okay, fine. Fair enough. <laughs> like, if it, all it is is that like, we're like ingesting this like terrible ideology, you know, and all of it is is so that when I go to PTA meeting, like you the don't one parent who I hate doesn't stand up, like, yeah. you know, like it's worth it to me. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That might be the whole point of it, oh you know, be like Robin D'Angelo, if like, if Robin D'Angelo could make that one parent shut up you know <laughs> i would be like robin listen i don't agree with any of the ideas in your book but you were amazing i feel like that should be the blurb like that's honestly a better <laughs> oh. selling point than the actual book blurb. what's the name of that book i don't even remember the name of the book oh, what's your uh, name of her book white fragility right oh yeah white, white fragility yeah <laughs> i don't I know say white the theater. problem is that the white the white parent who won't shut up and is like being super racist and selfish at the pta meeting they will never identify yeah. themselves as right, that person. Right. You know, they'll always think it was like somebody else, you know. <laughs> they'll be like, oh, that's not me. This is about Southerners, you know. And be like, no, bro, it's about you, you know, <laughs> dude who lives in Berkeley. Um, all right. We're, uh, we're, is there anything else you wanted to say about this essay? I thought it was excellent. It was excellent. I think, okay, the one other question I had when I was rereading at this time was, is this also an essay that applies to like the Trumpist white working class? Oh, that's a good question. And what do I don't, you think? I don't know. I mean, I well, first of all, I don't think that they would <laughs> like. I think a, a number of them could should read this and like reflect on that question. I think like obviously it's not written for them because not only because it's written for like Jews, but because it's written for again a class that is told that they are. Well, I mean, I guess in that sense, it is relevant that a group that is like told that they're doing fine. I mean, the mm -hmm. whole I guess like after Trump was elected, this whole conversation we had, especially like in media around like, do we not take the concerns of the white working class seriously, all their grievances, all of their anxieties, like the great replacement fears, all this stuff like does that like theoretically, if we think about this from like left organizing, we would say like this is a constituency that can be properly organized to see their common cause economically with like all right. these other people and like get over their racism and their fears. Right. Um, I think maybe a similar kind of grievance politics has been instilled in that community. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah, for sure. I just I mean, don't know if like the mechanism is the same as like with Asians or like upwardly mobile, like Jewish well, people. Online it's the same, I okay. think, because I see in sports, Twitter. Mm -hmm. That's all half of sports Twitter is like a white person gets in trouble, you know, and everyone's yeah. like, they're only getting in trouble because they're white. You know why, you know, like, it's I a see. lot of that, right. And I do think that there's a whole lot of like, well, we're the only people who don't get protected. Okay. type of yeah. stuff. And nobody cares about us type of stuff amongst like a sort of right wing, white dudes. 
But you know, like I don't. I think that more more than anything, just sort of shows the bankruptcy of the entire way of thinking, yeah. more than like a way of doing it. And it's just like if everybody feels like there's not enough sympathy for them, right? And their vision of the world right. is that like somebody is walking around with a wheelbarrow and doling out sympathy, right? And like that person <laughs> just walks by every single person and then dumps it all at the feet of like. Oh, I don't know, like black people and indigenous people and mm -hmm. they get all of it, you know, but guess what? Like, you know, there's like nothing in that wheelbarrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So like the idea that like that black people or indigenous people or trans people are like getting all the sympathy is like nonsense, you know, like, like, like what does the sympathy look like in a material way outside of like who gets tweeted about more on any given day? Right. Like who fucking yeah. cares, you know, but that actually has become almost its own like sort of material reality, mm -hmm. right? Like where it's like a currency, right? And that people think about it as like a currency and maybe it should be thought of as a currency, but like, you know, I choose to live in the real world. <laughs> of NFTs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of like sitting in front of this computer for the last yeah. nine hours. <laughs> um, all right. Well, yeah, Ariel, thank you for writing this piece. You know, I think it gave us a ton to think about. I'm sorry that we only talked about it in like a few ways, but like I, I do think people should read about it because like there is this like or should read it because there's this like very like sort of beautiful part about it where she's talking about how like um she and a friend of hers were writing these uh this is maya ip her friend who's a contributing editor there and they're writing this series of letters where they're talking about their discrepant approaches to holocaust history and um, i'm just reading for the piece here you talk of having moved through of healing i wrote to it fuck that what is this Carrying this legacy mean, if not carrying the pain, isn't the pain alive in us what makes it real and alive, what makes it more than a story? Yeah. The occasion of the letter finds me afraid to heal, lest I lose meaning of my family's suffering and its role in the story of who I am. When the pain, quote, will be ordered, intellectualized, process healed, it will also be sanitized and therefore meaningless. Um, and then it goes into like this conversation about like, what does it mean to sort of make meaning through your historical pain right your family's pain and um what how does that get converted into the world and i don't know i think that that's like yeah. a really thoughtful and meaningful and not glib way to think about it right like um and uh i don't know i encourage everyone to read it like um i think it's it's much more complicated than just you can choose to do it or not do it right i do think right. that for us, Tammy, maybe it is a little bit easier to choose because we are kind of disconnected from, mm -hmm. um, you know, just because like we're not so we're a little bit more disconnected from whatever uh, stuff happened in Korea, you know, but um, but I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily healthy to just like say, well, who cares? You know, um, I don't yeah, know. of course. Yeah, I agree. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening to our show. Tammy, is there anything else you want to talk about? Do you have no. to plug anything? I think we're good. Thank you. How's your surfing instructor? Is he good? My she? third teacher was the best. I miss him already. They're closing down the beach he teaches at for the summer so or for the winter. Oh. But I might, yeah, I'll come back at you for tips, Jay. How many people are out? Don't ask me for tips. I'm like, <laughs> I just be like, uh, how many people are out there anytime you go? 
I'm, so I'm going to go back to the first beach I started at, and that one tends to be a little more crowded in the winter. Are we talking about like 20 empty. people out there, or like 10 people out there? After the typhoon, there were probably like 50 people out. 50? Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Holy like, was a, anyone there's good? There's like a scene there, a small scene. Was anyone good? Yeah. Well, to me, everyone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was anyone like... Okay. The waves are small, oh. though. Like, if you're used to California waves, right? Like, they think that surfing in Korea probably looks like a joke. <laughs> no, but it would be a very welcome joke to me at this point. You know, <laughs> I have no desire to like go on any. Uh, the waves I don't are wanna, like a meter to two meters, basically. Yeah, I don't want to get beaten up. I just want to like gently glide around, you know, and just float around. That's my goal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, like, what what is the point? I'm 42 years old. Like, what am I going to do? You know, like, what else do I have to learn in the world? Um, okay. May is telling us there's an event Thursday. Oh, yeah. Um, I have a talk that I'm doing. We mentioned it on the show before, but it's about the U.S. military in Asia. And as you know, there's a bunch of missiles being lobbed very close to me right now. So I hope folks will tune in. We also have um, Akemi, um, who's going to be talking about Okinawa, and Jonathan is going to be talking about the Philippines. And he's tuning in from Manila. All right, well, thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to support the show, it's goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. There for $5 a month, the low, low price, you will get access to our Discord server. We're going to be doing more bonus episodes soon. And um, I don't know, the Discord server is great. We're doing our fantasy basketball draft now. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. There's 20 teams in the league, which is like so many, which means this. This draft wow. is going to take like 10 years. Um, I just checked to see if it was my pick yet. It's not. Um, actually, everyone is like... This is now like a ritual in the Discord. <laughs> 20 people is a lot for a week. <laughs> it's arguably too many. But it's nice. We're a big open tent people. And uh, we're in our Discord, we're just going to let whoever it is in. So we have 20 teams in that league. Um, and... Uh, If you'd like to get in touch with us, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can just reach us on Twitter at TTSGpod. Um, Thanks as always to our producer, May Schatz and Tammy. I'll see you next week. (laughs) Bye.